week, I thought about the fact that I, you know, there was uh, several different parts of my parenting that I thought were, were done. And uh, then we have uh, these uh, foster girls running around our house the last several years. And so I'm going to have to redo my whole parenting spiel when it comes to the whole monster talk. And it goes kind of like this. No, there are no monsters in your closet. No, there is no little green creature underneath your bed, you know, and I had to actually have that talk. But I think I might have to backtrack on that just a little bit because as it turns out in my parenting as I'm watching these little girls growing up, uh, it's uh, settled on me again that I actually do believe in one monster. And there is, in fact, a monster that I already see having an effect on my children, and the problem is that they're not afraid of this monster. In fact, this monster, they've already kind of come under its spell. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the money monster. Yeah, already, at five and six, they've come under the spell of the money monster. You say, when does it show up? At a five-year-old? Sure, it shows up in a five-year-old. When uh, they fight like cats and dogs about having the one cherished toy when they've got a hundred of them, some unopened, in their room. The money monster shows up when a toy breaks and they say, that's no problem, we'll just buy another one. And they said that quite a bit, and so I've got a spiel, I've, I've got a whole speech prepared for that moment, and uh, I've practiced over long ages of parenting for me, and so um, that's about the moment when I really push back hard against the money monster, when I say, sweetie, where do you think this money's coming from? Like, uh, you know, do you think there's an endless supply of money? Like, is there a money tree? Are you imagining there's a money tree in your world? I mean... You know, we just break things and we just buy something new. We just replace it, no problem. Now, I've had this talk enough that my little one, she knows that money does not grow on trees, that money comes from work. And we've made the direct association. There's a direct relationship in her mind now between work and money. That's where money comes from. So recently, she cracked a screen on her tablet. And I was upset because that's an expensive thing, right? So, uh, but when I confronted her on this, it's like, no, we got to learn our lesson on this thing. It's very important. She says to me, she responds confidently and somewhat defiantly, that's okay. I'm just going to get another one on my birthday. Oh, really? <clears throat> and I was just about to launch into my money tree speech. When the sassy one stopped with her hand and said, that's okay, Dad, we don't need a money tree. You just need to work harder. <laughs> yeah. So. so she got it. She got the lesson. That's exactly what I was trying to teach her. See, so already at five, here we have the money monster. It has convinced her life, her life, would be so awesome if she or her dad were only rich. So as they grow up, I'm going to need to have these talks, and I'm going to have to warn them that there really is a monster out there that really wants to lure them into devoting their lives to earning increasing, increasing amounts of it, to delight and glory in the spending of it, to feel entitled to more and more of it, to lie awake at night dreaming about how to stockpile it or to get their hands on somebody else's stockpile to pursue a lottery windfall payout of the thing through a lucky chance or to endure a job that she'll secretly hate just in the off chance for swimming in it someday. That monster is really there and really out there. Now, maybe it seems to you as I'm describing the money monster that I'm taking a view of money and you've read the Bible and you're thinking, well, it doesn't all say that kind of stuff. What should be our view when you and I might admit today that the Bible's view on money seems to be all over the place. 
it can be a bit confusing. And for those of you who haven't read, let me just kind of give you a wealth of the breadth of the Bible's take on money. On one hand, the wealth of the rich is their fortress. The poverty of the poor is their destruction. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 15. On the other hand, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Matthew 6, 19. On one hand, with me, wisdom are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. Proverbs 8, verse 18. On the other hand, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 10, 23. On one hand, how a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Proverbs 13, verse 22. And on the other hand, Jesus said, Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Mark chapter 10, 21. So, is money awesome or is money not awesome? You know, we're going to have to figure out God's complicated relationship with money, and we are going to do that this morning. So let's begin here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. It's a little letter that Paul the Apostle sent to a little church mid-first century A.D. He said, Therefore, put to death whatever is in you that is worldly, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. I just want to focus on the last piece this morning. See, so the money monster I'm talking about isn't actually greed. Now, what does Paul say that greed is? He says that greed is idolatry. So, what is idolatry? And please don't say it's like praying a little incantation over a tiki or a statue that you put up on the mantle or something like that. That is maybe somewhat accurate, but far too simplistic and relevant a definition for our purposes here this morning. No, idolatry is a substitute God that we make out of created things. Idolatry is a substitute God that we make out of created things. So yes, the Jews were guilty of idolatry when they bowed to images of wood or stone, but what's behind that, friends? If that's all you see is an ancient pagan, and they're just filled with scientific ignorance, and that's all you think idolatry is, you're missing it, because there's something deeply spiritual and personal and emotional and relational behind idolatry. What's behind it is a trust in that false deity to be the source that the real God wants to be. That's what's behind it. There's an emotional reaching out of longing for some kind of security or source. But the Jews wanted these other gods because they promised things that the real God didn't promise. Things like unlimited pleasure, money, and control over nature. And when you're a subsistence level farmer uh, in the ancient Near East, control over nature, <laughs> what would you give for control over nature? A lot. And so it didn't matter necessarily that these uh, uh, idols didn't deliver. They gave the illusion that by giving them your life energy, which is to say your money, your crops, and in many cases your children as sacrifices, you took back control of your life through the idol. You took back control of your life. And so bow down to the idol, and your life will be awesome. You fast forward to the first century, and in the Testament, Paul is saying greed works just like that. Get your mind around what's going on inside the ancient man who is bowing low in front of his idol. Now you're understanding how greed works in your life. Greed promises to put you in control. It promises to be a source of comfort to you, a source of peace to you, a source of pleasure to you. It promises, in short, to fill all the roles that God wants to fill in your life. 
It, it just wants to fill God's role, essentially, in your life. So as an idol, the money monster wants nothing less than total domination of your value system. That's all. That's all it wants. It's a total domination of your value system. Oh, by the way, without you knowing it. Without you knowing that it's happening. Surreptitiously, covertly, under the surface, the money monster works. And so the money monster is working from childhood, working on you secretly. Oh, I the car my neighbor has. That's a sweet ride. That is a sweet ride. Look at the house they're in. I mean, they're only in their late 20s and they got that beautiful place. Oh, if only I had the vacations that my brother and his wife go on. They look so happy on Facebook. Right? So it's working on you, working, working. The ads in your paper, the ads running down the side of your Facebook screen, the, the catalogs you've been sent in the mail, the billboards that you see while you're driving down the street, men and women, some money monsters working on you, working, working, to dominate your value system, to tell you what's important, and to speak to you about comfort and power and security and pleasure and tying it all to money. And wouldn't it be awesome if you just had enough of that? Luke chapter 12 records an interesting confrontation that leads to Jesus teaching about the money monster. Oh, by the way, just open up the gospel. And you see that Jesus taught on the money monster quite a bit, as it turns out. And so what, what spurs this particular conversation about the money monster is a guy who's really upset because the inheritance thing isn't working out, and apparently there's a family dispute about it. Jesus settled the dispute about the inheritance. And Jesus said, man, I, I, did, I was not sent to earth to be a lawyer in small claims court. That's basically his response. And then he turns to the crowd and says this amazing, stirring, sobering thing. He says, beware. Don't be greedy for what you don't have. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke chapter 12, 15. In other words, real life is not measured by how much we own. Now, a lot of you in this room have been to church enough in your life that you've heard that before. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And it's a truism. It's a cliche. It's a, it's a, it's a saying that we have in the church, and uh, we, uh, we spout it, and we'll spout it maybe quite a bit, but what we say can sometimes be stacked up against what we do, and we realize that our true allegiance is not necessarily with the cliches or with the truisms, even the Jesus truisms that we say we believe. It's somewhere else. And so these truisms, you know, they, they, they kind of start to bake themselves into the culture of the West, percolate up in our poems and our songs. Can't buy me love, which is essentially that same thing. Can't buy me love. But one short trip through your checking book and might say otherwise. The best things in life are free. That shows up in our poems and our songs. But your debt load says you probably don't believe that. Right? Best things in life are free. But then we look at the practicalities of our life and how this is working itself out. Now, because Jesus knows that we do tend to like to spout platitudes and we like to um, maybe uh, regurgitate them without any application, to drive this point home to make sure you don't miss it and you don't, you don't just reduce this into a little truth. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, you know, and just turn it into a Facebook meme and throw it on your, you know, on your wall and, and, and that'll be fine. He wants you to actually do something about this. So what does Jesus do when he really wants to drive a point home? He tells a story. 
So he proceeds to tell a story. And you can read all about it in Luke chapter 12. I hope you do this week. I'm going to retell it to you this morning with a modern gloss, okay? So he tells a story. There once was a man, and he had made it really big in the business world. I mean, it had been a slow time, long hours, punctuated by constant stress, some health problems along the way. But through shrewd management, a little luck, picking the right people, the man's business had flourished. So one day at a meeting, senior staff, one of, his, uh, one of his leaders stands up and says, boss, we are on the cusp of something great. I mean, we are ready here. We see that if we can break into a couple of critical new markets and some contracts get um, uh, made, we are going to hit it and hit it big. We just have to move quickly and we have to move decisively. And so they made plans. And the, and, and the man is thinking, wow, I mean, this is it. This is the mother loaf. And so with great excitement, he goes home that night and he goes to tell his wife and he says, "Hun, listen, we've made big plans. We are now expanding and it's going to be awesome. Yes, it's going to be hard. It's going to be more 14-hour days. We're going to do weekends for maybe the foreseeable. But we're set up now and we're going to be set up in five new locations and we will be set for life. This is the only thing that matters right now, babe. This is the only thing that matters. And when we get this done, we're set. That night, about 3 a.m., his wife wakes up and is a little annoyed to find herself alone in the bed and thinks to herself again in front of the television. So she marches downstairs, a little bit disgusted, and finds her husband, in fact, asleep in front of the computer screen. She reaches to wake him, grabs his shoulder, but he's cold to the touch. She calls 911, but it's too late. He's dead. Massive heart attack. The funeral comes and goes. And the people say the same dumb thing they say at funerals all the time, which is, he looks so peaceful. Yeah, rigor mortis will tend to have that effect on you. But unseen by human eye, the assessment is made on this man's life. Beyond the human assessments, he was a great man. Beyond those assessments, the divine assessment comes down from heaven. And it's written as a final epitaph on his freshly dug grave. And it's just one word. Fool. You fool. You fool. This very night, your soul will be demanded. Now, God is not engaged in just sort of a petty name-calling here, friends. This is a tragically accurate diagnosis of a man who cannot distinguish between ultimate payouts and short-term payouts, between long-term investments and short-term investments. And as a businessman, you'd think he would have known better. And for a guy who doesn't know better, there is only one word for him. He's a fool. And so as an exclamation point to the story, Jesus says, Luke chapter 12, 21, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. See, Jesus knows the power of the money monster. He knows the pull that's, that money and the stuff that money can buy has on our hearts. And it has the potential, friend, to be the central driving reality of your life. doesn't matter what your platitudes are. Best things in life are free. Can't buy me love. doesn't matter what you put on your Facebook. God knows the heart, and he knows in your heart you cannot have two central driving priorities in your life. You can't. You can... Pretend, maybe, that you can juggle these two things, but in reality, it's one or the other, and that's it. 
So Jesus would say, in another context, Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And so Paul and Jesus are just in total agreement here. Money is a competing God. And his word money, by the way, in the original Greek is mammon, which is an association with an idol that they would worship around material wealth. So Jesus is very clear that the money monster is a competing idol. It is the idolatry of greed. And everybody's susceptible to it. He's marching around, the little green monster, around all of our lives. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, if you, love, if you believe Jesus, what you're going to do, first thing you're going to do is you're going to say, I've got to pursue a rich relationship with God because that was the criticism over the rich man's life. It wasn't what you, you, were, you, you shouldn't have gone into business. No, that wasn't it. You shouldn't have made money. No, that wasn't it. It was you didn't have a rich relationship with God. That wasn't the central driving value of your life. So if you're listening to Jesus this morning, you're saying, I got to have my relationship with the Christ has to be the central driving focus of our, of our life. For following up this story, by the way, same gospel, same chapter, Luke chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus will say, the acquisition of things dominates the thoughts of people all over the world, the pagans. He says, all the people groups around. But your heavenly Father already knows your needs. So, seek the kingdom, that is the place that God rules, seek to have God's rule over all your life, and he will give you everything you need. Now, I'll tell you, friends, based on long experience, I just believe Jesus here. I do. I believe him here. And I've seen exactly how this works. People who prioritize a rich relationship with God, and I'm seeing a lot of these people in the room here this morning, people who prioritize a rich relationship with God and make it a consistent daily thing, this is the central driving love of their life, they make an amazing discovery. They discover that Jesus satisfies you at the deepest level. He satisfies you deep down. Now, it's personal. It's experiential. What I'm talking about, yes, absolutely it is. I mean, if Christianity offers you nothing but an intellectual change, a philosophical change in your brain, it is not coming through as promised. It promises you something more than that. It promises to connect you personally to the God of the universe. And when that happens, something amazing happens. You are less and less and less susceptible to ease the pain of your life with the anesthesia of stuff. Why? you're satisfied you're satisfied some of you just spent the first 25 minutes before we walked into the service this morning worshiping god and it satisfied you. and you realize in the presence of god there was something that's deeply moving and fulfilling and it it sort of quenches some of the other hungers that tend to want to reach out and only be satisfied with stuff the more that Jesus becomes the satisfaction of your soul the less and less you need to stimulate your sagging ego with expensive clothes and nice cars and to look better than that guy and the exotic vacation and the toys. You don't need that if your ego has been ultimately propped up by God who says, you are my son, you are my daughter, here's my name. You know, when God confers upon you the grace of his name, your, your ego's had all the stroking it needs that day. You are loved and accepted and part of the family. And you don't need them to reach out for belonging through status or the symbols of status. You know, many people aren't like that. Many people in this world, they don't get it. They don't get that that is the promise, the inheritance. Because they don't get it, 
like that businessman, and they're just reaching, and just a little bit more, and just a little bit more, and they keep cramming that stuff in, and maybe that'll satisfy, maybe that'll satisfy, but does it? I mean, would that really, would life really be awesome if you just had enough money? I mean, the statistics are in on this, friends, and we're finding that some of the most unhappy people in the world had the most money in the world. Kurt Cobain, Howard Hughes. I mean, we just go on a litany of names. People had the most money in the world, the most unhappy. Now, let me turn a little bit. This whole subject of desires brings up another um, illustration for me. So a little right turn here. I hope you don't get whipped up. Um, I was watching History Channel the other day, and a Buddhist monk comes on. And it was fascinating, so I watched him for a little bit. And, and you know, at a moment in the interview with this Buddhist monk, he summarized Buddhism beautifully. So he said something basically like this. I'm paraphrasing somewhat, but basically he said, the fundamental truth about life is suffering. To eliminate suffering, you must eliminate desire. If you succeed through right thoughts, right actions, when you die, you'll experience nirvana, the total extinction of the self. And it was a beautiful summary of Buddhism, and that got me thinking about this whole issue of desire because it's really at the root of everything we're talking about here this morning. See, in Buddhism, I think, friends, maybe you've never studied it, but in Buddhism, desire is the cause of all suffering, and it must be eliminated. Desire, then, essentially is bugaboo in Buddhism. It is enemy in Buddhism. So you paint it like this. A man desires a bigger house, a better car, a larger paycheck. Oh, he doesn't get it. Now what? Suffering, suffering. And what caused the suffering? His desire. He went after it, didn't get it. Oh, anguish, pain, suffering. Or let's say he does get it, but he sacrifices marriage or his health in the process. Suffering, desire causes suffering. And there's a piece of this that Christianity would resonate with, that there is a problem in the brokenness of human desires that really can crush us. So, for example, the brother of Jesus said in his letter, James 1, verse 15, temptation comes from the lure of our own evil desires. Desire can really muck it up. It really can. But here's the problem. See, for the Buddhist, unilaterally, it says that all longings produce pain. Therefore, you must get rid of all of them. All desires are bad. All must be ruthlessly eliminated. You must detach from them completely. And here, friends, is where Christianity and Buddhism part company. Because Christianity would say, whoa, wait a minute, why do we desire? What is the deepest longings on the inside? We want security and pleasure and happiness, right? And the want for more is ultimately rooted in those simple things. Now, are those things evil in and of themselves? Security, pleasure, happiness? Well, I don't think so. I mean, imagine a world without any security, any pleasure, any happiness. That, that world would be hell. It would be hell. No, Christianity is different. Christianity is a creation-affirming religion, you understand? It understands that desire, so much of the desire in you and in me is built into you being a part of a created universe. Here you were, you grew up on planet Earth, and so you have this desire for oxygen, and behold, there is air. You have this desire for food, and look, there's food all around God's rich earth. You have a desire for sex, and there's a thing called sex. We have desires as part of being creatures in this good world that God made, and so our desires can't be inherently wrong, can they? No, no, there's something good in your desire, but Jesus says, 
that when you look at your deepest desires, you must attach it to your relationship with God. The desire should be for security with God, pleasure with God, happiness with God. We would attach these things to God as an ultimate source, and that's what he means when he said, you must live richly with God, the very thing that businessman wouldn't do. Live richly with God, seeing him as your ultimate source. God affirms your deepest desires. Friend, what he condemns is your superficial means of satisfying them. So make your problem is not that you desire too much, it's that you desire too little. It's not that you want too much, you just want a million dollars in your checking account. That's it. What about eternal bliss? I think that's bigger. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure that's bigger. You desire so little. Your desires are a clue, friends, to the meaning in the universe. Your desires are calling you to reach out for ultimate satisfaction, but you're happy on step one. Bigger car, bigger house, looking better with a neighbor, big vacation, fancy little doodad. And God's saying, would you, that, that's just, really? That, you're going to stop there? Because what's offered to you is union with God through the Christ. That's what's offered to you. So, friends, if we're going to be happy to satisfy ourselves with these superficial things, we're just sitting ducks for the money monster who wants you to focus on the temporal and not the eternal, on the short term rather than the long term. So Jesus would say, look, your goal should not be the elimination of desire. Your goal should be the transformation of desire. And that is the word of the Bible to rich people. And so that's the word of the Bible to you. Because you're rich. Say, I'm not rich. Rick, come on, I'm not rich. Yeah, yar. Yeah, have you traveled? Have you traveled? You live in a tiny little weird pocket of wealth compared to the rest of the world. You're not just the 1%. You're like the, you're a fraction of the 1% compared to the rest of the world. You're rich. So, the Bible has something to say to you. Paul talks to his young apprentice, Timothy, in his letter to him, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And he says, look, you're going to have some rich people in your churches. So every church has some rich people in it. So he says, you're going to have to teach them some stuff. Make sure you teach them this stuff. And so I want to just kind of break it down for you. So you'd say to a rich person, you desire more security? Good. Let God be your strong tower. Let God be your safe place. So for he'll say, 1 Timothy 6, 17, teach those who are rich in this world, that's me, that's you, not to be proud and not to trust in their money which is so unreliable. In other words, it comes, it goes, market crash, poo, 40%, gone, right? Their trust should be in God. Desire security. Desire it not in your money, but in God. You desire more pleasure? Good. Let God grant you the good things of this good world that he made to satisfy you and be for your enjoyment and for you to share. For he'll go on, same letter, same Paul, same... Uh, same audience, God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. See, the kingdom of God is not a no-fun zone. Some of you think, oh, kingdom of God, and then there's the sub-sign over there, no fun allowed. Uh-uh. God has richly given everything for our enjoyment, but he keeps going. Tell them, tell them, who's them? The rich people. Tell them to use their money to do good in the world. They should be rich in good works and generous to those who are in need, 
always being ready to share with others. There's pleasure in that. For the same Jesus who mandated this said, it is better to give than to receive. There's pleasure in that. You want pleasure? Find your pleasure in God. And then you desire happiness? Good. Let God be the source of your joy. He keeps going. Same chapter. By doing this, they, that is the rich, that's you, that's me, that they, the rich, will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. I love how the NIV puts it, so that they may experience life that is truly life. You know, there's life with a small L and there's life with a big L. And so you want, you want these things, you want pleasure and you want happiness and you want security, good Find them in God. Jesus says, desire. Oh, yes, desire. Let your heart be filled with longing. Just let your longings transcend the car and the house and the toys and the cash and let it long for real life. Real life. What our money monster is doing is pulling us away into a misguided attempt to have a God-given desire met in a non-God-honoring way. Your secret longing, friend, if you'll admit it, if you'll admit it, is relationship with God, a rich relationship. Pursue that. In the fourth century, great Christian teacher and thinker Augustine said of God, to God in prayer, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest. Now, when you find this rest, and I'm looking around the room, and I know many of you have found this rest. You've gone under the waters of baptism because you experienced the washing of regeneration on the inside. God made you a new person. And you found true heart rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, peace of mind in a way that the world can't give. You found that, and I'm talking to you now. Those of you who have found that, you understand, or you found this forgiveness and leadership, you're going to find a whole lot easier. You're going to have a whole, more, a whole bunch more resources to put money in its proper place. So AC3, what you need to control the money monster is not so much a lack of money. You need to put money in its proper place. Now here's the truth. You need money. You need money. That's the truth of it. You can't forget money. You can't take the teaching of Jesus and say, therefore forget money. And that's why you kind of have to interpret the Bible all together and look at how it works together. And that explains all those other Bible verses I quoted earlier about money management. God is deeply interested in your money management as it relates to your heart and a rich relationship with God. Your rich relationship with God is actually affected and, and it, sh it shows up in your money management. It's only after you have put your desire for God in a proper place and therefore put the money monster in the subdued place that it needs to be in. Only then can you begin to obey this money management wisdom, which is repeated in the Bible over and over again. It's really simple. It's from Proverbs all the way through the New Testament. And it basically boils down to four things. We talk about these things in our FBU class. It basically boils down to these four things. Pay debts aggressively, save diligently, give generously, work industriously. That's it. I mean, it's really simple stuff. It's unbelievable kindergarten stuff. And this, the Bible says, leads you into a kind of financial freedom, a freedom from the idolatry of greed. Now, after listening to what Jesus has to say about money, I hope you're connecting that bit of wisdom to your heart and the status of the richness of the relationship you have with God. 
Are you connecting it? Because you can't do this stuff. Not well, not with joy and a lightness in your step without living richly for God. You just can't. So you look at the first one, you know, debt. And God wants you to be free from indebtedness and the fear that one unexpected expense is just going to sink your ship. So friend, why are you in debt? What's the hard piece behind it? I'm not talking about a reasonable mortgage or business loan. You talk about that with our FBU uh, leaders. I'm talking about the uncontrollable spending. I'm talking about the average $8,000 of consumer debt that the average American family is carrying. Friends, why are we carrying that? Why are we stressed out about the whole debt thing and wondering about the next payment and worrying over our head? What's going on there? It's not because you're bad at math. little green monsters running around your life. I mean, we've got to connect these things. Savings, you know, God wants you to live within your means and have future expenditures planned for. Go to the ant, the Bible says. You've got to be able to anticipate some of those things and plan for them and save for them. Now, friend, why can't you save? Why can't you put away a little nest egg? Why can't you get that done? It's in part because you had to have it, and you had to have it now, right? You had to have it now. You were entitled to have it now. That's why you can't build the nest egg. Why can't we go on vacations after we've paid for them and not before? Why can't we refuse to trust Uncle Sam to foot the future looming bills of your retirement and health security? Why can't you take responsibility for that? If you're honest with yourself, you'll realize that it's not because you didn't have the ability to save for these things. It's because there's a little green monster running around your life. I mean, if you're honest. And then God talks about giving generously. He wants you to have a heart that beats like his for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. He wants you to be a giver. He wants you to expand in generosity and, and prioritize the things that matter to him, which are people. <laughs> but people today, you know, talking about income inequality and oh, look at the poor in our country and the, 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 the lower class is expanding and there's a systemic problem and nothing can be done until we overturn the system. And so we pacify ourselves expecting nothing from us except a vote until the revolution happens. Listen, friend, you can be a generous giver right now and you will provide a revolution in the life just one. Larry Fish said it so beautifully. Just one, you'll make a difference for this one. And if everybody lived like that, we wouldn't need anything else. We wouldn't need a revolution. If we just said, look, I'm taking responsibility right now to be a generous person now. And you can do it, and I can do it together. And we will care for the widows and orphans. Yes, it's you and your income, and me and my income, and you and your house, and me and my house. And we welcome them in, the widow and the orphan. Because, friends, you don't care about the poor until you care for the poor. And you can't subcontract that out to somebody else. And as long as you're doing that, well, I don't think there's any rewards on Judgment Day for that. What did you do for my little one? Well, I, I voted. Really. Well, I, I, I was really adamant that there was a revolution and that we changed the whole system of systemic inequality. Well, that's very honorable. Now, what did you do? What did you do, though? What did you do? Friend, you can be a generous giver starting right now. And why can't you? Why do we continue to give along at the paltry rate of 1.8%, slightly larger in the church, of our total income to charitable causes in this world? Why? It's because there's a little green monster 
running around your life. And then the last thing is working, right? And God calls us to have a steady income flow into our lives that comes from work so that we can provide for us, provide for ourselves so that we're not a burden on everybody else. Guess what? That's a great way to love your neighbor, to not make your needs his responsibility. Oh, you loving your neighbor that way. And that's what God calls you to. That is the expectation inside the New Testament church. It should be the goal of every family in this room to become self-sustaining. And you do that through work, not entitlement. Oh, and yeah, there are times when it's tough and you're in over your head and the church is there and they'll help you out. There was a time when my wife and I were deep uh, in the weeds financially. We had a, a terrible, unexpected expense come into our world in the form of a seven-and-a-half-pound blue smurf emergency c-section and the church was there for us to help us out to help us pay for those medical bills it was a beautiful thing but the end game for us and hopefully for every follower of the lord jesus christ is that you work with your hands you create an income and the better you work the more the income and you care for you and your family's needs and you can share and have something for somebody else simple stuff it's simple stuff friends and here's what i'm saying i'm saying you can't accept it or you can't engage in it uh, beautifully and joyfully, this pay off that aggressively, save diligently, give generously, earn industriously. You can't until you first realize that the money monster is the reason you're not doing that stuff. And until you have slain the idolatry of greed, you won't engage in God's way. Not, not heartily. Not joyfully, not with a spirit of freedom, knowing that God is calling you into freedom and not to surrender one piece of the freedom that he wanted to purchase you at the cross. So you won't cast out that idol until you agree and let God be your security and your pleasure and your happiness. Now I'm asking you, what decision do you need to make this morning? What courageous decision do you need to make this morning to let God be your security, and your happiness, and your pleasure. I want you to think about that, and I'll pray for you. Lord, I pray that you would help us, the church, to stand out like a beautiful spectacle in this world because we understood what it was like to live in the kingdom of Jesus. Yeah, we're thrown in there with everybody else, and we live in the kingdom of the world, but we're like special citizens who have dual citizenship, and our true citizenship is in heaven. And what defines us is the words of that great follower of Jesus, Beethoven, who said, Jesus, joy of man's desire. And oh, let us desire him more and more, O oh Father, so that our hearts may be full and we may find ourselves much, much less interested in filling our hearts with false gods and substitutes. And so we're going to look different. We're going to look free. We're going to look happier. We're going to look people that are more pleased and have more peace of mind. And in this way, you will get glory through your church. And I pray that you would, in Jesus' powerful name, amen.